Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Living World. My name is Julia, and this is a new show that I have started uh, this year. And I apologize for being a little bit late. I'm having a few uh, technical issues trying to uh, upload some audio files from an interview that I conducted. Anyways, I'd just like to give you a brief explanation about what the show is. So I am a first year here at St. Andrews, and I thought, oh, on a whim, I might as well apply for a star. Because, I mean, what else? What else am I going to do, right? <laughs> it's kind of funny, though. I don't really have uh, hardly any experience with hosting a radio show, so this is kind of my first go at it. Um, but it's so far, I'm really excited, and it's pretty fun, uh, even though I'm just talking to no one right now. But I know that hopefully there's some people who are listening right now. But anyways, so uh, The Living World is... Um, is my new show where I talk about various uh, findings in biology in uh, different from different universities across the world. So um, if you haven't already guessed, I am majoring in uh, molecular biology. Uh, so I'm a bio nerd and uh, running a show like this is right up my alley. Uh, anyways, I've spent uh, the past maybe week and a half, two weeks uh, preparing for this first uh, show, I've uh, picked up picked out uh, three articles to talk about today, and uh, I'll be getting into those later. Um, but if you, uh, I'm sorry, but I have to still figure out a few of my technical issues with my interview. But before I go back to that, I'll just give you a brief uh, background as to what the first article is about. And uh, oh, and I mention actually is my show how it works more specifically is while I am talking about different uh, articles in the field of biology I'm picking a different diversity uh, every week to discuss so it could be from any country anywhere in the world really so I mean if you have any suggestions uh, hit me up because I'm open to it I've got a good list maybe like 10 or 15 but I feel like there's so many schools out there that I might have not heard of or anything. And I'm really open to suggestions. Uh, anyways, the first school that I'm going to be talking about on today is, uh, you guessed it, St. Andrews. Because I thought I might as well start off with my alma mater, St. Andrews. And super excited to be here. I'm actually in St. Andrews right now. So, no, I'm not broadcasting this. Uh, five back or five hours ahead, so that's nice. Anyways, uh, I just yeah, I'll be uh, broadcasting uh, with the first uh, school, St. Andrews. The first article I've uh, decided to talk about, a little brief understanding is um, is about um, uh, how research. Um, implanted microlasers onto heart cells. And before I get into the specifics of the article itself, I want to give a little bit of background into some of the things that are covered in the article. So first off, uh, as I mentioned in the title, it focuses on the implantation of microlasers into heart cells. And uh, for those of you who know how the heart works, I'm just going to go into that really quickly. 
So the heart is uh, one of the most, is probably the most important muscle as it circulates the blood around your body and into all your organs. So it keeps you alive. And it's an involuntary muscle, meaning that to operate it, you don't have to think. And uh, specifically, the heart is divided into four different quadrants. You have the right side of the heart, which contains two of these quadrants, and the left side of the heart, which contains the other two. Now, firstly, I'm going to go into explaining a little bit about the right side of the heart. So the two quadrants that are on this side of the heart are called the right atrium and the right ventricle. This side of the heart uh, deals with the blood in your body that lacks oxygen because blood's sole purpose is to carry uh, oxygen around your body and provide it to your muscles and your organs so that your body functions properly. Now this deoxygenated blood enters the right side of your heart and it flows to the right atrium, which is the top right-hand corner of your heart. And your heart is located on the left side of your body, so uh, don't get that confused. Um, and if there's any U.S. students, if you remember doing the Pledge of Allegiance and having to put your hand over your heart, that's always been on the left side of your body. Anyways, the uh, deoxygenated blood will enter your right atrium, which again, top right-hand corner of your heart. It will uh, then go through that uh, cavern into the right ventricle, which is uh, coincidentally right below the right atrium. Then the blood will uh, travel out through the pulmonary artery to go to your lungs to be infused with oxygen. And if you want to learn more about how blood uh, takes in oxygen, you could look that up with the internet. I mean, I have some vague idea of it from reading a, a medical book that I still have that goes into all the specifics of the human body, but I am also not a med So if you, I guess if you have any other questions, you can also ask a med student. I'm sure they'll know a little bit more than I will. Anyways, the left side of your heart handles uh, the blood in your body that has already been oxygenized uh, via the lungs. And this side of your heart is also set up in a similar uh, manner. You have the left atrium, which is in the top uh, left-hand corner of your heart. And, uh, the blood will enter from there and then enter into the left ventricle. So it follows a pretty similar system as the right side of your heart. It just deals with oxygenated blood. And once it enters into the left ventricle, this blood will be pumped out of the aortic valve to uh, cycle around your whole body. And your heart does this all day, every day, till you die. So it's pretty amazing that this muscle keeps working throughout your whole life. And uh, that leads me into the next thing. You can kind of see why the heart is really important to uh, be functioning properly. Because if your heart, if you have a heart issue, you either die or you hope and pray that you're able to get it fixed in time. Uh, anyways, to study the heart, doctors uh, under, undergo a variety of tests for patients. Uh, so one of these is an EKG or an electrocardiogram. And it's a long word and 
Uh, of course, I wasn't entirely sure what it was until I looked it up. But uh, an EKG is basically these little sticky pads with um, transmitters that they stick onto your skin. And these hook up to a uh, heart rate monitor. And a uh, heart rate monitor, if you've seen Grey's Anatomy or literally any advertisement about hearts and heart medication, you always hear the heartbeat, right? This sound comes from the EKG monitor. Uh, another method that doctors use is called an echocardiogram. And this is another one, uh, but it's actually uh, relatively simple. So an echocardiogram is um, basically a heart sound scan. And if you don't know what an ultrasound is, it's the little um, little machine with the little like ball thing and that they use to uh, take pictures of um, babies uh, for pregnant women. So uh, you can kind of guess that it's a similar method to um, showing you an image of your heart. Uh, but I mean, hey, it's pretty cool, right? Uh, next, doctors also will uh, take your blood pressure. So the little, <laughs> I have so many funny stories about the, the blood pressure cuff. It's that thing they stick around your arm. And every time I, I swear the doctors do it, I just, I, I kind of just lose feeling in my arm. And it's, it's kind of the worst, but it's, it's okay. I mean, they're getting their blood pressure readings, right? Uh, the doctors will also uh, take your pulse. So that, I guess, probably goes on hand in hand with the blood pressure. And uh, there are also chest x-rays. Uh, I know those are a lot more involved. I've never had one personally, but if any chest x-ray, I'd love to know about it because I I haven't really been in the hospital. So I, like, I don't know how the x-ray stuff works or if you have a guy or CAT scan or all that stuff. Uh, it sounds really cool. A little scary, uh, but real cool. So yeah, any of you have ever had one, let me up. Oh, and just a side tangent about a funny story about um, an EKG, so the electrocardiogram, the little pads. My sister, she recently got her uh, wisdom teeth out over the summer, and uh, she had to uh, take anesthesia when they did the surgery. And she was telling me a story about how, uh, so she was sitting in the, uh, the room, right, waiting for the doctor, and my dad was in there with her. She was telling me that her uh, heart rate was about like 80 beats a minute. And uh, with my dad, and she was she was okay. She was calm, and then she told me, the doctor came in. She said her heart rate spiked up to like 120 beats per minute, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy, because <laughs> again, I've also never had EKG on before. So I just thought that was a pretty funny story. And shout out to uh, my sister Brooke. Uh, I know that you're not well, but hello. She's not awake right now. <laughs> um, if you haven't guessed, I'm from the U.S. So uh, where I live on the East Coast, it's five hours back right now, and it's four uh, four eight in the morning right now. So I would not expect anyone in my family to be up right now. Anyways, uh, that's just a good general outline for the first article we'll be discussing. I have to go off the air for a uh, quick few minutes to try and figure out the technical issues so that I can play um, my interview for you guys. And uh, just a little brief uh, introduction about that. I was able to talk with uh, three researchers here at St. Andrews, uh, Dr. Samantha Pitt, Dr. Uh, 
Dr. Schubert and uh, Dr. Uh, Gather. And uh, this was over uh, Teams a few days ago, actually. It was very interesting doing an interview over Microsoft Teams, but you know with how the situation is in school today and everywhere really, it kind of makes sense. And anyways, uh, so that's the interview that I need to finish figure out, figuring out how to set up for you guys. So I'll be back in a few minutes and then I'll start playing the interview for you guys. See you soon. Okay, hi guys, I'm back. And um, actually, my first uh, live uh, radio show session didn't go very well because I had about 20 to 30 minutes of technical issues trying to uh, figure out how to successfully convert my interview audio files into ones that are able to be played uh, on the STAR uh, broadcast page, which if you didn't know, it's called Discord. Anyways... Uh, my, so my first episode was kind of a dud. Uh, if you want to listen to it, I have the file, and you can listen to my epic technical failures. Uh, anyways, uh, I just wanted to say that I have had to reshoot that first episode, so I won't be having as many technical issues, and I am going to be uh, now playing my interview for you guys. Anyways, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, uh, Dr. Schubert, Dr. Pitt, and uh, Dr. Gather. Thank you uh, for coming to talk to me this morning. And uh, I'd just like you guys to give a brief uh, explanation about your research project. Sure. Uh, thank you for your interest um, in our work. Um, a couple of months ago, we published our uh, study where we use microscopic lasers that we integrate into small hearts and even into individual heart cells. And we use these lasers then to sense uh, very specific physiological parameters of these heart cells. And we are now trying to actually figure out uh, why we could measure this so nicely and to develop this further into maybe a technique that is more widely used uh, in biology uh, and in medicine. But I guess we can go into the details uh, if you have any questions then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, um, so when did you start the research for this uh, project? Do you uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, maybe we go one step back, um, which which was really what what that motivated all that work, and that was really that um, about five years ago, we were able to show that we can produce lasers that are so small that they can actually be integrated into individual cells. So. These lasers, to give you an idea, they are about 10 to 15 micrometer large, which is maybe a tenth of a human hair, so they're extremely small. And we found out that several cell types are able to, to internalize these lasers. So we knew that we can have biological cells that kind of carry lasers around in their, in their body. Uh, and that was actually the starting point uh, for the study. So we knew that, uh, and we were actually looking for, for new applications for these lasers. We knew that we can use them to track individual cells, but we also wanted to use them um, as a sensor, essentially to, to sense some parameters of living cells. That was something that we were really, really, really interested in. And we thought the heart cells might be a, a very interesting target to do that. 
So if I can just jump in, actually, the, the collaboration came about, um, I was actually listening to a talk that was given by um, Marcella Malta in the BSR, BSRC seminar series. And we thought um, it would be really, so I'm a cardiovascular scientist, and we thought it'd be really cool to put these lasers into the heart cells because they contract quite strongly. And so that's really where the collaboration started from. And I think that's a real key of St. Andrews is this interdisciplinary nature and the ability of different um, disciplines to all work together. Okay, it's, uh, that's that's really cool. Yeah, it, it does sound like a pretty interdisciplinary interdisciplinary project with involving uh, technology of lasers combined with heart cells. Uh, so uh, when you were explaining the project, uh, Dr. Uh, Schubert, you said that the micro lasers were implanted on the heart cells. So how does the reading differ with your micro lasers compared to more um, conventional methods using uh, laser technology? Um, that's a very good question. So I think the, the reading, how we sense the contraction is very different from almost any, any technology that is available, I would say. I mean, they're the, the typical technologies when you go to a doctor, for example, you make an ECG where you basically measure the electrical signals um, that the heart um, yeah, emits or that, that, that goes through the heart and through the body. Then there are techniques which are based on um, audio technologies where you can actually uh, measure the, where you can also visually uh, set, uh, well, actually take videos of how the heart is beating. Um, but what we do is actually we sense something very, very localized in the individual heart cells. Uh, and that has to do with how the light actually is generated inside of these micro lasers. Um, should we maybe explain a little bit more than how the micro laser works? Yes, yes. Because I, I did read your research paper, but it was a lot of uh, data and um, statistics and everything. So I was a bit confused. So um, if you could uh, pare it down for me a bit, I'd appreciate that. Uh, that's true. I mean, the, the paper is already quite advanced and, and often you don't really have the time and, and space in these publications to, to go to the details of the basics. Um, okay, maybe nutshell physics of how, how a laser works. Um, so every laser needs essentially three components. Um, you need a pump source, you need a resonator, and you need a gain medium. And I maybe just go through these different three different parts very quickly. So the pump source is essentially what provides the energy to drive a laser. Then you have a resonator, which essentially is there to, to copy and paste photons. And you have the gain medium, which actually provides enough photons. Um, and then when you combine these three, uh, then you can generate laser light. And laser light is essentially a very special tool. It has very special properties. It's very bright. Um, it's very intense. It has monochromatic light, meaning if you look at the color, it has only one individual color. Uh, and one of the most striking features is maybe that the light doesn't diverge. So you have all seen a laser pointer. One of the very special things, the difference between the torch and the laser pointer is that the torch, the light goes in all directions, it diverges, but the laser pointer just points to one direction. So all the energy is essentially uh, concentrated in this beam and focused onto a single spot. And that makes laser light so important. So in our case, um, in the case of the micro lasers, we, we can't really integrate the pump source into the micro lasers. So we use an external pump source 
uh, to pump them, and then we still generate the laser light inside microscopic structures. And the microscopic structures, these are the polymer beads. You've seen these green spherical structures inside of the heart cells. So these are what we call a, a microlaser because they're essentially the resonator and they also have a fluorescent dye inside uh, which provides the photons to drive the laser. And when we excite these small uh, microspheres, uh, we can generate the photons in the microspheres and then the lasing process, pro process at some point starts and we generate the laser light uh, inside of the heart cells. And we can use then the interaction of the laser light with the heart cells to sense the contraction. Um, so that was quite quite detailed. And let me know if there's anything to <laughs> if, I, if you want anything to have more explanation to it or so. Uh, no, that's okay. I'm sure it's a very uh, complicated uh, procedure to run the lasers and such. No, actually not. So maybe if that was the impression, then I, I explained it very badly. I think oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite simple. So I mean, the, the structures themselves, we really buy them off the shelf. So they are tiny polymer beads. Just a plastic sphere, which has which shines really brightly uh, if you excite that if you excite them. So very brightly fluorescent uh, small plastic beads, and you essentially use a short pulse laser to excite them, and then they immediately emit the laser light from inside of the cell. So these structures that we use are really simple, I would say, and of course the whole setups that we use the microscopes are a bit more complicated, uh, but overall. I think compared to many other techniques, also microscopy techniques, it's still a rather simple way of getting these very nice and precise measurements from within the cells. So you mentioned uh, plastic beads. Do you implant the microlasers inside of the plastic beads to get measurements? So the the mass the, the plastic beads are essentially the laser. Okay, so they carry the fluorescent dye, and we of course rely on the fact that we need to get these microlasers into the heart tissue or into the heart cells. And that is something we can actively do, for example, in the zebrafish. Hi guys, I'm back. Just putting a little bit of a tangent uh, off from the interview. So just a brief explanation about what a zebrafish is. Now, I didn't entirely know what they were before. I did a little bit of background research. Anyways, zebrafish are... Uh, obviously they're fish, and they share about 70% of the same genes as humans do. So that's pretty crazy, because they're a fish, but they're over half similar to us in terms of their DNA. Pretty crazy. Also, zebrafish, uh, when they're young, they are transparent. So this is why they're also really important to use in various scientific and medical studies because researchers can observe things very easily since the fish are see-through. I'm sure that's also kind of creepy because you can see the organs and everything, but I mean, hey, for science, that's a good thing. Also, uh, the zebrafish, uh, they reach adulthood in three months. Now, compared to... Uh, the rate of growth for humans, that's crazy fast. Like, you get this tiny little fish egg, and then in a quarter of a year, you get an adult fish. That's pretty crazy. And that's also another good thing for experiments, because you're able to uh, have a fully grown fish very quickly. 
And if, as long as you have a lot of them, then you're good on your experiments. And zebrafish, uh, more relevantly to this interview, are able to repair their own hearts. So this is one of the um, things that uh, Dr. Schubert, Dr. Pitt, and Dr. Gather are employing in their research today. Okay, now back to the interview. We show data where we have the microlasers implanted into the zebrafish heart, where we really inject it. We take a small microneedle and we injected them into the heart. Um, but then we can also just wait for the cells to internalize the lasers. That's what we, what we do with the individual heart cells. Although we haven't really figured out how the cells manage to do that, uh, we have proof that they have the microlasers inside of them. And yeah, so there are different processes for different kind of tissue and cell types. In your uh, research article, it mentions uh, single cell barcoding where you track individual heart cells. Would you ex would you mind explaining a little bit about how that works? Sure. Um, so I mentioned already that the laser light is very monochromatic, so it has very discrete um, wavelengths. So the color is very, very pure, let's say. Uh, and essentially, when you change the size of one of these lasers just a little bit, the color changes with that size. Um, so just from production of these lasers, they are not all the same size. They have slightly different sizes, which means all of them have different colors. And we just have to look at the color spectrum of the individual lasers to know exactly which one uh, belongs to which cell. And that's why we use, or we say we can use the spectra of the lasers as a way to barcode uh, individual cells and to really find the same cells after days or maybe even weeks in the tissue. That's really cool. I didn't know it was based off of uh, colors. I thought you actually had like programmed in numbers to track for barcoding. That's yeah. really cool. It's kind of the analogy that we use because if you look at the spectrum, it basically looks like a barcode spectrum, um, but it's essentially the color that each of these lasers carries with itself, which is so distinct and so specific. And that's why we say we use some optical, optical barcoding. So um, you've talked about how uh, the laser measurements work with individual cells. Have you tried yet in your research to monitor uh, larger groups of heart cells? That's, that's a good question. Maybe, maybe Sam, I think that's one of the projects we have planned anyway. Maybe you want to comment? Yeah, so at the moment, um, you know, this is a very new technology and we've proven that we can um, put it into single cells. We've also gone into heart slices. So this is a network of tissue and that's really exciting because optically, obviously, tissue is very difficult to image and we can measure the cont contractions deep within the tissue. And so the next step now is to try and do exactly as you're saying, to monitor across the myocardium or to measure across a whole heart so that we can look if there is a problem say um, if we have a heart failure model how does that contraction alter the wave of contraction how does that alter between a healthy happy heart and a heart that has a pathology and so that's actually the next step that's what we're working towards um in the next publication i hope <laughs> So have you uh, hit any surprises in your experiments or any uh, thing that has uh, shocked you? <laughs> um, to, 
to, to me, it, it was and still is surprising that the laser light um, can be recorded from so deep in tissue. So normally, the sort of the biggest caveat of many of the optical techniques, optical, optics is great, it can measure non-invasively, it can measure very accurately, but normally its biggest caveat is that it can't look very deep into tissue. And so people have been developing better and better microscopes for decades that go a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper, but it's always extremely difficult to do this in particular if you want to look at living things that move quickly and the heart obviously moves quickly. Um, so by recording the light from these micro lasers, we were able to look um, about half a millimeter deep into tissue, which is extremely deep compared to all the other techniques that are out there, uh, which can record at video rate live images from the living heart. So that to me is, is still surprising. And I mean, the, the physics is there to explain it, but intuitively I wouldn't have expected that it would work so well. So how many, uh... Uh, just to scale, how many of the micro uh, lasers have you had to uh, make for your research? <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I don't have to count them. So they, they come in millions and billions when we buy them. And when, then I think we are very wasteful. Um, but of course, over the years, I mean, the study overall took probably three years to complete. And many of the main experiments were, were repeated at least a dozen of times or so. So yeah, you measure hundreds of, of times. Um, I think for the individual heart cells with the lasers, probably we have a few hundred of recordings, which are then really hand recorded, going there, measuring the laser characteristics, taking the microscopy images and then putting them together. Um, that's normally what it takes to, to have these larger studies and to have enough statistics also to, to really prove that this is an effect that is relevant and not just by chance or so. An important next step is to then scale this recording from going by hand to becoming more and more automated. And there's, there's work now in, in our labs to try and build systems that can very rapidly scan hundreds of lasers and monitor, as Sam said earlier, monitor the propagation of a contraction wave across the heart. Have you uh, employed any help from uh, undergrads or postgraduate students in your labs yet? Um, yeah, actually, I mean, particularly this study, we had at least on the paper, I think that the second, third and maybe fifth author are actually undergraduate students. Um, so they all contributed very heavily to this project. One of the students, for example, wrote the program, the software that we used to analyze the spectra. Another, um, I think it was a master project, was actually the first project where we measured the first contraction of these heart cells uh, and of the lasers in the heart cells. That was very exciting. And then a third bachelor student provided the proof that we can actually measure contractility. So I think we, we always try to, to integrate um, uh, students in our projects. And I think this is a particular uh, successful project, I would say. Um, so, yeah. It's always, always nice to have small projects that you can then um, focus on a very small aspect, but at some point they all come together and ideally make a nice story like in this case. Okay, hi again guys, I'm back. Just wanted to give a really quick shout out to all of the postgrad and undergraduate uh, 
med students and any other uh, subject field students who participated in uh, their study. I would love to help all of them with their research, but for you guys who have had your names on their scientific papers, woohoo to you! Okay, and now for just the last part of the interview. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I'd, I'd love to get involved if you have any other openings. Uh, I'm not sure when you're going to start your research again, but I'd love to get involved. Uh, another aspect of your uh, project that I found mentioned in your paper was uh, the measuring of the heart cells contraction rates when you added uh, different drugs. Um, like, for instance, um, I found that you uh, were studying um, the effects of the addition of the drug at Nifidipin, I can't say it properly, for um, managing high blood pressure. Um, it was a, uh, a calcium ion channel blocker drug that you were measuring. Uh, would you mind talking a little bit about how that worked? So really what we wanted to show was that um, even with these microlases embedded into the heart cells, that the heart cells were functional and behaving in a physiological manner. So we used these pharmacological tools, such as nifedipine, to basically either lower the contraction or we used other drugs to increase the contraction. And it was really just a, a control to show that the, the cells were healthy and happy, even with these microlases embedded into them. And actually, this is something that could be taken further as these microlases are developed, because perhaps it could be used as an output for drug screening, for example. Um, you know, we're, if we're talking about high throughput screening, and Malta mentioned a little bit about how they're now working towards and uh, making it more automated, then that would certainly be something that would be attractive for high throughput screening to measure how drugs affect contractility of the heart, which could obviously then be um, used for screening of drugs that could treat arrhythmias, for example. That's really cool. I hope that you uh, are able to progress with that later in your uh, other research. Uh, I think that's all the questions I have for you. Uh, if there, if, is there anything else that you'd like to um, mention or talk about? I mean, maybe you can mention a few of our future plans. Um, yeah, that'd be great. One of the, I think one of the main projects at the moment is definitely to make the laser smaller. I mean, you have seen that at the, in the current work, we work with these plastic microbeads and they're about the size of the nucleus of the cell. So they are a considerable structure that is then integrated into the cell. And you can always argue, okay, if there's something so large into the cell, are you really sure that it doesn't affect the cell at least a little bit or so? Uh, and so during the last few months, we are working already on the development of so-called nanolasers. Now, these lasers are then only about 200 nanometer thin, and they are only one thousandth of the volume of the nucleus. So they're actually really hard to find inside of these cells. And so we are quite sure that with these lasers, uh, we won't affect the mechanics of the cell uh, in any way. Uh, and that is something we, we are very excited about to make this work. Uh, of course, and there are more challenges now that they're so small, you need to find them. You need to prove again from the start, essentially, that you measure the same contractility, the same formation with the same quality. But well, that's something we are currently 
um, developing, but it looks very, very promising. So I'm, I'm quite excited about the nano laser work. And then I think we have also, of course, more, more work planned together with Sam, um, especially on the hard slices. Um, but I think that's all, yeah, a bit, <laughs> of that course. Sounds, that sounds more really cool. Difficult to go there. Um, so I think we need to go back to the labs and do as much as we can at the moment. How is that working with uh, COVID? Are you able to go into the labs much or not as much as before? It's of course more restricted uh, and limited, especially when it comes to to collaborative projects. I mean, we work very closely with, with Sam's lab uh, and then just getting the samples, for example. I mean, we have our schedules, which are of course much more limited. The time slots are, are a fewer available. And then we have now to arrange um, the sample preparation uh, with a completely different school, uh, which also get their samples from another school. So there are three different schools in, in town kind of connected. And that of course becomes at some points a nightmare to really get the timings right and it's all more difficult, but we're working on it to make it to make it happen. That's great that it's still happening, even though it's a yes. little uh, slowed down. Well, uh, thank you for uh, taking some time out of your day to meet with me. I really appreciated uh, talking with you about the research that you've been doing and your future plans. It all sounds super cool. Thank you for your interest. Thanks, Julia. Yeah, it's amazing that you put this together in, in such a difficult time. I think it's a cool project. Yeah, really thank like you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm back. I am still uh, having technical issues. So uh, since uh, nice to anymore my airtime, I'm just going to uh, briefly uh, talk about the uh, uh, the rest of this article, just actually, no, I'm going to talk about the um, other two articles, just so you can get a brief idea of what about as well. And uh, the interview for this um, first article with the microlasers, I will be uploading as a separate file so that you are able to listen to it. Or, I mean, I can also shoot another show, but I'm not sure how that works exactly. Anyways, uh, just so you guys know, the other, um, first off, I'm going to go into the second article that I did research on, which uh, is about how uh, uh, barnacle geese have reacted to the climate. So uh, barnacle geese, if you've never heard of them, as of them live in uh, three main uh, population groups. They uh, breed in other Greenland, Slotbard, which is an, a uh, land group off the northern coast of Norway, and uh, Novaya Zem, Zem and uh, any Russian scholars, <laughs> I know you can pronounce it better than I can, but that is an archipelago off the coast of Russia. And these geese are uh, very uh, interesting, at least to me, when I was looking them up, as they nest in, in uh, high uh, rocky cliffs uh, so that they're able to stay um, up in the high ground away from uh, various predators. They are hunted uh, commonly by foxes or other uh, larger birds. Anyways, 
the uh, typical life of a Barnabas uh, hatchling is actually pretty scary. Uh, the hatchlings will need to leave their nests as early as uh, one day after they hatch. So, uh, meaning they break out of their eggs, they're a day old, and then they have to leave their nest. And do this because where the geese uh, uh, build their nests typically, they don't really have any access to food. So the uh, chicks, or whatever you call baby geese, I'm not sure, they need to leave the nest to get access to water and uh, the food that they eat, which is grass. And this all occurs in uh, late June and July, uh, in early July when the uh, chicks uh, now, um, it is pretty perilous. I watched a video uh, off of National Geographic of these barnacle geese, uh, little tiny chicks, probably like the size of your hand. They, they follow their uh, mother and they, they, they leave the nest and they literally jump and fall off a giant, uh, crazy tall, rocky cliff. It, it was a little, uh, kind of bad for the poor uh, little guys. But um, I found that about 90% of these uh, geese uh, chicks survive the fall. And this is due to the fact that they're really, really small because they're like baby geese, right? And they are also uh, pretty lightweight in comparison. And they're also fluffy um, because they have all these little cute feathers and everything. And this helps them to survive. Now, of course, there can be... Uh, instances where the geese chicks die if they uh, hit the rocks or uh, animal eats them or if they get stuck and they can't get out. But um, as I said earlier, about 90% of them survive, so that is good. And only about 50% of these uh, chicks get to, um, get to adulthood. And this is mainly due to uh, predation from different animals. Now, uh, in the winter, uh, these geese, these geese uh, will nest and live uh, all along the coast of Scotland, uh, also primarily in the Isle of Islay. I've never actually been there yet. I'd love to go there once COVID lifts. But it was interesting because I found that these geese, uh, they were thought to have earlier uh, hatched from uh, barnacles, uh, as these were uh, various lore stories from sailors and that the shells that would wash up on the coast in Scotland, okay, they were thought to be eggs from these geese. So I thought that was pretty crazy that the origin story for barnacle geese was that they literally came from barnacles. Pretty crazy. Oh, and if you ever want to be able to identify one, generally, uh, they don't really have a lot of brown coloring. They have a primarily a white face, pretty much a white face and a black neck with uh, gray feathers. So I've seen one of these geese, but I would love to at some point. Anyways, the study that was conducted was a collaboration effort actually between uh, researchers from St. Andrews and also other researchers from uh, Norwegian, British and uh, Dutch uh, universities. They found through uh, about a 45-year study that these barnacle geese have shifted their migration routes from over the last 25 years. Now, uh, these geese 
right from uh, the UK and Scotland up to their three main breeding grounds in Greenland, uh, Slavbard, and uh, Russia. And uh, they have to stop to fuel up when they're traveling because flying that many miles or kilometers is very tiring. Now, these geese, they used to fuel up in uh, areas of Norway that were below the Arctic Circle, so south of the Arctic. But uh, due to uh, these developments in climate change, and through this study, the researchers have found that uh, these barnacle geese now have to stop uh, for their same refuel uh, point uh, in an area of Norway that is above the Arctic Circle. So this is pretty crazy as the geese have had to completely change their migration route. But uh, barnacle geese in particular have been able to uh, go through with this as the areas that they are resting to do up uh, through their migration has not been impacted too much by human developments. But of course this could change over the years. So far it hasn't yet. It's been pretty interesting. And uh, other animals that might be migrating generally have more issues with this as they're losing their habitat. Okay, now I'm just going to talk about the last article that I have researched for the episode this week. This one is about a research project that uh, studied uh, corals to measure the complexity of uh, different habitats. I'm just going to go into a little bit of a uh, background about um, different habitat complexities before I talk specifically about the study so that you can get a little bit of a general idea about uh, those kinds of things before I go into it. Uh, first off, uh, habitats that have uh, lots of holes or uh, nooks and crannies are typically places that have more uh, living things that reside there. So an example of this is a pretty uh, pretty clear one of comparing a uh, open uh, grassy field to a jungle. Now uh, one example of a giant uh, grassy field or plain habitat that I can pull off the top of my head is the uh, Great Plains of the U.S. And for those of you who haven't uh, been there, they basically take up the majority of the, the Midwest. And I used to live in uh, Nebraska. I lived there for a few years. And uh, of course, it was pretty flat. And if uh, you don't know about Nebraska, they grow a lot of corn there. And uh, the sport our sports team was always... Uh, known as the corn huskers because yeah corn uh anyways it was really flat and there was a lot of corn and the winters were always freezing because the wind would just howl across the snow and make it very very cold anyways if you haven't guessed uh great plains or prairie type uh, habitats are generally very flat they have a lot of grass uh Sometimes there might even be a few shrubs. Of course, in the, the more uh, the places that aren't populated, where it's just land, can't say the same for where houses are. And there can also sometimes be uh, potential trees. 
Now, I know the size for the trees is probably really small as well because you're in the middle of a field. Anyways, the uh, Great Plains in the U.S., and also it reaches up into Canada, it covers about uh, 295,000 kilometers, which is a lot of area. It goes from the mid-U.S. Uh, up into the middle of Canada. And uh, there are a few endemic species that I found inhabit this uh, habitat, namely uh, bison or buffalo, uh, sage grouse, which is a type of bird, uh, ferrets and uh, pronghorn, which I think are a type of deer, but they have really cool horns. Note, they're named pronghorns. Anyways, the Great Plains in the U.S. and Canada is one of the last four temperate grasslands in the whole world. And I'm sure the Savannah and Africa counts as one. I think there's one in China. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure. But if you're curious about the other three, uh, you can go ahead and look those up. And uh, as you've kind of guessed, the Great Plains in the U.S. and other plain habitats in the rest of the world have fewer animal species because they have uh, less places with holes and nooks and crannies for animals to live in. Now, in comparison, is a jungle habitat. For instance, uh, the Amazon. And in the Amazon, we know there is a greater diversity of animals. Uh, they can live among the forest floor with... Uh, dead leaves and there's lots of plant variation and the Amazon also has a water source, the Amazon River, and specifically the Amazon rainforest, uh, also known as the lungs of the earth, contains about one-tenth of all animal species on the globe. And uh, this forest covers about 40% currently of South America, which is about 1.4 billion acres of forest land which is a lot. And uh, I'm sorry about not converting this into kilometers, but it is definitely a lot more than 295,000 kilometers that the Great Plains occupies. And it's uh, pretty clear in this comparison here that there are tons more plant and animal species uh, numbers diversity and variation in uh, a jungle habitat compared to uh, the Great Plains. And for the specific study of uh, studying habitats, researchers uh, chose to study a coral reef. And uh, these researchers were from, uh, firstly, uh, University of St. Andrews, WU, they were also from uh, the University of Hawaii at Manoa, uh, the University of Sydney, and the University of uh, Macquarie. Sorry if I butchered that. I'm not entirely sure how to say it. Uh, anyways, uh, these researchers chose to study uh, a coral reef. Specifically, they chose the Great Barrier Reef, which covers about uh, 345,000 kilometers. And this is a coral reef, so it's entirely underwater, if you didn't guess. Anyways, uh, this reef is off the northeastern coast of Australia, and I'd love to go there, but the flights to get to Australia are long and expensive.
But if any of you have ever been there, I would love to know how it is. It looks gorgeous. I'd love to visit at some point. Anyways, the uh, Great Barrier Reef, due to its size and uh, different species of corals, has thousands of species of animals, including uh, sharks, fish, mollusks, etc. There's a bunch. And it specifically has uh, thousands of different coral reef species, uh, including hard corals, sponges, etc. And uh, I actually, uh, luckily, uh, just over this past summer, uh, my dad and I got scuba certified in, uh, we were in <laughs> Jamaica, and it was, it was so cool to see all of the, um, the coral species and all the fish, and it just went on for, for miles and miles because you'd swim and you'd see a fish swimming on top of the coral, and then you'd look down and there'd be like five under rocks and things, and it was just, it was super cool. Anyways, for the specific uh, scientific study, uh, the researchers from uh, the four universities that I mentioned a little bit earlier, they uh, figured out a way to, uh, using coral reefs as a basis, uh, categorize how habitat complexity is measured. And uh, habitats range from uh, flat structures like the Great Plains to 3D structures like uh, coral reefs and the Amazon. And uh, the benefits of this that they found is that specifically for coral reefs, they uh, were using this to study and apply to following how land and ocean changes will change the ecosystem structure. But that's for more of a future uh, inference. Anyways, what the researchers found through their study is that the uh, more complex a habitat is, the more biodiversity or more types of animals and animal species there are in one place. And humans have an effect on this, as we already know. Uh, deforestation, uh, agriculture, etc. Uh, but the, the main ones that have affected uh, habitat complexity and diversity have been climate change and ocean acidification, which have been progressively getting uh, worse year by year, but we'll see how that ends up in the future. Anyways, uh, these researchers found three main factors that determine uh, how a habitat's complexity is measured. They, uh, they are rugosity, fractal dimension, and height range. Now, uh, specifically, uh, firstly, rugosity is the amount of surface area uh, from different things that animals have to live on. So if you take our example of the Great Plains and compare that to a coral reef or the Great Barrier Reef, there's a lot more surface area in, on all the different corals than there are 
on the Great Plains because you have all of the bends and curves and things that the corals produce compared to the Great Plains, which is just primarily a flat, open land surface. Next is the second uh, factor of fractal dimension, which is a measure of um, how many different sizes of animals can live in a specific habitat. And related to this is the final factor of height range, which is the upper size limit for creatures that a habitat can support. So if you take a um, elephant and you put it in the tundra, the tundra does not have enough resources to support an animal as large as an elephant, but it can it can support smaller animals such as caribou, foxes, wolves, etc. <coughs> Anyways, from these three factors, the researchers found that they only need to know two of these to be able to calculate the complexity of a habitat. So you don't need to know all three of them, just two, which is really nice. And they were able to test this by working with the coral reefs at the Great Barrier Reef. Specifically, they traveled to uh, Lizard Island, uh, which is in the Great Barrier Reef. And again, I've never been there, but if any of you have, I would love to know how it is. Looks really cool. And this specific island, uh, they counted uh, 10,000 different corals of 100 different species, and they used special underwater cameras to accomplish this. And, I mean, hey, they got pretty good findings, right? About measuring habitat complexity. And they plan to apply this to other habitat types, and more specifically, to apply this to how uh, climate change can affect different habitat types. Anyways, that is all I have for now about that article. Thank you for listening, and if you want to tune in again to listen to me uh, talk about my next school uh, this coming uh, week, go ahead and tune in. I'll be there 9 a.m. UK time on Sunday. I'm excited to see if I'll have anyone listening. I mean, I know hardly any of you will be awake or anything, but that's okay. Anyways, I uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Living World, and I'll see you all again next week.